Okay, what do you want? Well, it's like this. The American government needs you to come and help. Oh, let me tell you. The world is in great danger. Every moment counts. Only you, Captain Invincible, can prevent this terrible catastrophe, right? Right. How did you know? Because that's what they always used to say to get the old horse out of the barn, and it used to work, but not anymore. So you can tell whoever sent you here that I gave up the hero business a long time ago. Well, you saved my life this morning. That looked pretty heroic to me. Everybody makes mistakes. Mad Max Minute Podcast. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we are watching The Return of Captain Invincible from 1983, directed by Philip Mora and written by Stephen E. D'Souza and Andrew Gaddy. It stars Alan Arkin, Christopher Lee, and Kate Fitzpatrick. The first thing I want to bring up is that one of the writers that I listed there, specifically Stephen E. D'Souza, was one of the writers on last time's movie, Commando. Oh, I thought the name sounded familiar. Yep. So we have a returning individual working on this new project. Julia, after we watched the trailer for this movie, you asked me a question. Do you care to repeat that question? Oh, I was wondering what the connection was to the Mad Max series. So The Returning Captain Invincible was filmed in Australia. It was an Australian production, Jensen Films Incorporated, I want to say. But while none of the main characters that we see are from the Mad Max series, this movie features little bit performances from Bruce Spence, Max Phipps, and Virginia Hay. Oh, nice. So as we're watching, we'll have to try and keep an eye out for them. Bruce Spence is going to show up as Mr. Midnight's doctor. Max Phipps is going to show up as an admiral. And Virginia Hay is going to be there as a beautician. All right. Yeah, we'll keep our eyes open for him. Mm-hmm. So I've watched the trailer several times. I've read little blurbs on Wikipedia and whatnot. I know that this is a musical. I know that much. (laughs) I know that Christopher Lee has an amazing song that he sings. So there's that. I'm not sure much about the rest of it, though. I really like the premise. (laughs) One thing about old school trailers is they tell you much more about the story and actually what's going on than modern trailers do. Mm -hmm. So the trailer tells us the premise of the movie. And I like it. It's a superhero who gets knocked off his pedestal and made to be a normal, average person because of the laws that superheroes tend to break when they're superheroing, which we see in other movies. Like Watchmen. That's the first one that came to mind. Oh, the first one that came to mind for me was The Incredibles. Also valid. Yeah. And also Civil War. Was that the, the right? Yeah. They wanted to start regulating the superheroes in exactly. Civil War. So. Yeah. So it's a theme we've seen in other places. And then something happens and they need Mr. Invincible back. Mm-hmm. And I, I really like the idea that he has forgotten how to use his powers. <laughs> And that part of the movie is going to be spent him learning how to do that again. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to be enjoyable. Now, Alan Arkin is our main character, and he is an actor who's been around for a long time. I'm looking at his IMDb page, and his top four include his roles in Edward Scissorhands, where he played Bill, Little Miss Sunshine, where he played Grandpa Hoover. I mean, these are big movies. I don't remember seeing them. I'm trying to think of any of these movies that I've seen with him in it. You've seen Little Miss Sunshine. 
I have not. Oh, it's good. It's enjoyable. And you've seen Edward Scissorhands. Well, I have, but it was a long time ago. It has been a long time. I enjoy Alan Arkin. I think I tend to see movies of his where he is older. Mm-hmm. And he's a little bit younger in this movie that we're going to watch. So I'm gonna, I'm looking forward to that. For some reason, I thought he was in a Toy Story movie. But I don't think that's the case. No, it's not the case. Oh. Hmm. Christopher Lee, on the other hand, super recognizable. I haven't seen him in the original 1973 Wicker Man, but I've seen a review of it. So I know of his performance. And of course, everyone knows him as Dooku and Saruman and all that other stuff. I was aware before this of Christopher Lee's singing career. Yes. But I don't think I've ever seen him singing in a theatrical setting. Yeah, same. It'll be nice to see him hamming it up as a villain in this movie, I think. His musical number is a little odd. <laughs> but I feel like every musical number in this movie is going to be odd. So what else can I say about that? The third name, Kate Fitzpatrick. It looks like she's still acting in TV shows and shorts to this day. But her top four lists The Return of Captain Invincible as her number one, followed by Scooter, Secret Agent, Promised Woman, and The Removalists. So I'm not super familiar with any of those. But I'm sure she'll be fine. I don't think we've had a movie so far where the performances have been just awful. I think the things that we disliked about previous films in this series have been more so for production, not so much for acting. I agree. Even movies that we weren't really fans of, the acting's been really good. Yeah. <laughs> Although I don't really remember our first hiatus. I don't really remember if there were any movies with bad acting. Yeah. That was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. So we're going to take a break from this. We're going to go watch the movie. And when we come back, we will be enlightened as to the specific content of this movie. And we will be back to share with you our thoughts about it. So we'll be right back. Forty years ago, he was the hero of the day until the system knocked him out of the skies. Flying without a pilot's license. Wearing underwear in public. Forty years ago, he said he'd never fly again. And for good reason. I couldn't even tell the good guys from the bad guys. But when his country calls... We need you badly, Captain Invincible. We need you now. Real badly. When the evil Mr. Midnight threatens America... Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. It's time for the return of Captain Invincible, the hero who's forgotten how to fly, how to use his amazing computer brain, forgotten how to control his magnetic ability. What the world needs now is a shining hero. What the world needs now is a glory man. The return of Captain Invincible, legend in leotards, cape contender, and man of magnet. Fighting evil. Fighting booze. Choose your booze. Let's hit the red eye. There's nothing sicker in society than a lack of liquor and sobriety. So, drink, drink. 
And we're back. So we just finished watching The Return of Captain Invincible. <laughs> Julia, what are your first impressions? My very first impression is that I enjoyed it. I didn't enjoy every single moment of it, but yeah, overall, I had a good time. <laughs> okay. This was a bad movie, but it was a fun to watch bad movie. Like, in the hierarchy of films that one would call great, this wouldn't even appear. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, no. The only version that we could find was like a rip from a DVD from like forever ago. So the quality wasn't that great. I mean, it wasn't awful. Like it was watchable. Like it was way better than Metal Storm. Like if I was to rank this against Metal Storm, it's better than that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, like every in every aspect, it is better than Metal Storm. Yeah. It was elevated by the caliber of the actors, Alan Arkin and Christopher Lee. Awesome. The guy who played the American president, Michael Pat. Pate? Pat? I don't know. But he was really good. Just every little part was good. It's just the story and the execution were bonkers. Yeah, they were just so campy. Yeah. There is one character in particular, and I'm not going to get into it now because he doesn't appear until a little bit in, but there's a oddball character that is literally never explained, ever. So we'll get into that once we actually get into the movie. But I agree with you. This was a fun movie to watch because it was just so off the rails. <laughs> and like I was hoping, I said before we watched the movie, the premise of the story was pretty good. The movie starts out with a, what is it, like news on the move or something like that. It was an old film reel style. Yeah, which I was curious about right off the bat. Yeah. So they start out showing us this gang doing their gang business. Yeah, they're like, these are bootleggers and in storms Captain Invincible and he crashes through a wall like the Kool-Aid man and then he starts beating up the bootleggers. Right, so... Why were they filming before Captain Invincible came to break up the gang? Almost like this was some sort of propaganda photo shoot thing yes. that the film reel people put together to inspire the masses? Yes! Gee, that's crazy, Julia. I they would know. never do that. I know. The only thing that makes me think the opposite of that is that we can see... Mr. Midnight, he was running the whole thing, and he was sneaking out the back. So that made it seem very legitimate. Now, I didn't notice Mr. Midnight in that first Oh, he was in every part. bad guy scene. Oh, yeah? He was in every single bad guy scene. Because they show Captain Invincible breaking up the bootleggers, and yes. apparently Mr. Midnight was in there. And then they show Captain Invincible flying out to meet German bombers huh. during World War II. Yeah. Was that Mr. Was... Midnight in that part? He was in the part where they showed the parade oh. and Hitler. He was standing next to Hitler. Gotcha. Okay. They called him... Uh, like a mysterious... Industrialist. Yeah. Or something like that. He was the only one on the dais who wasn't wearing a uniform. Gotcha. Okay, I missed that part, but... I was more focused on Captain Invincible, his way of taking down German planes is to fly oh. up to there, stop the front prop, and then he just sits on the front of the plane taunting the pilot. That was so ineffective. It's like... 
And they do a little joke where he puts a little airplane on his uniform, like, saying how many he's taken down. And there were, like, six there. Yeah. Like, you are a superhero with superhuman powers. Yeah. You shouldn't be proud taking down only six planes. He should be able to take down so many more. (laughs) It reminded me of, in The Defenders, when Luke Cage says to Iron Fist, why are you going for the little guys? You have the power to go for the big guys. That's exactly what's going on here. Why is Captain Invincible taking down one plane at a time? He should be taking down Hitler. Makes no sense. Now, it's never listed out exactly what his powers are in entirety. They mention a couple of standouts. He's got an amazing computer brain. He's got the ability to fly. And he's got the power over magnetism. I think he also technically has super strength because he does a lot of super strength related things and he must also have some sort of super speed afforded him by the super strength i think so yes i think he also might be like bulletproof i think he does he deflects the bullets with With magnetism, magnetism which doesn't make sense because lead is not magnetic right they have a pretty loose concept of magnetism yeah like plastic buttons yeah that's a whole thing yeah (laughs) that is a whole other thing He breaks up the bootleggers, he fights the Nazis, and then he goes and visits a Boy Scout camp. And he shows them how to start a fire by rubbing two sticks together. Honestly, I thought he was going to start a forest fire. (laughs) He's got these gigantic logs because he has super strength that he's showing the kids how to start a fire, which is fun. Mm -hmm. And so I I thought it was a good setup. I thought he was going to like start a forest fire or something. And... At the end of that sequence, there's one of the Boy Scouts in particular who's like, ah, Captain Invincible, you're my hero, and sign my picture. And the boy's like, I want to be just like you. And Captain Invincible's like, well, you can't. So what else do you want to do? And he's like, I want to be president. And he's like, all right, when you're president, you can call on me for whatever you need. So Captain Invincible puts his arm around the kid for a photo and like crushes his shoulder squeezes his shoulder and you can hear the bones cracking and underneath. the kid's like wincing yeah <laughs> i don't know why i find that so funny the good times come to an end in this little flashback sequence after the world war i'm assuming once the mccarthy era starts because he's brought in front of the senate and they're questioning him about What were you doing in Russia? Why do you wear a red cape? All of these little things. Yeah, I don't think it was made very clear that it was a communist witch hunt. I think they just needed to clarify their questions a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I got it, but it felt like there was something else behind it. Now, did you see Mr. Midnight in the courtroom? I did see him there. (laughs) It would have been cool if they kind of led us to believe that Mr. Midnight was behind the trial. I'm pretty sure he was. I think the fact that he was there was meant to tell us that these senators were going after Captain Invincible because they were told by Mr. Midnight. Yeah, I don't think it was clear enough. But it kind of happens fast, so it really doesn't matter that much Mm -hmm. why they're going after him. The whole trial is infuriating because he's not given a chance to answer any questions. Mm -hmm. And then he's accused of being evasive and refusing to answer questions. (laughs) I love how they're like, what were you doing in Russia? And he was like, I was fighting tanks. (laughs) Yeah. I was destroying communist tanks. And they're like, well, why is your cape red? And it's like, because red, white, and blue are American colors. Yeah, they're like, well, just answer the question, please. It's like, like, he did. He did answer the question. And... It's almost like the McCarthy-era trials were a circus. Right. (laughs) 
later on the film, we get plenty of very, very good looks at his cape. His cape's not red. It's like orange and red. It's like feather pattern. Yeah. It's the color of eagle's wings because his cape is an eagle with the claws over his shoulder and his helmet is the head. Mm -hmm. It's very clear. It's not red. <laughs> yeah, he's got a really strong eagle motif over his whole costume. Yeah. Frustrated by all of these allegations and appearing towards the Senate, he just pieces out. He disappears. He flies away. And then everyone's like, oh, where did he go? And then as we transition into the opening credits, we're just in Australia now. And there's this drunk guy standing on top of a <laughs> cliff. And he is singing at the top of his lungs in a drunken stupor, just singing God Bless America, I think. No. It's was something it America about, the Beautiful? No. No, uh, it was. About a, New York. Yeah, it was in New York. He's inspired by God Bless America, but he's on the cliff drunk singing mm. about New York. Yes. Cause also come to find out, that's where he lived. Mm -hmm. He had an apartment of sorts in New York. It was a special apartment. Yeah. On that cliff, after the credits are done rolling, he's interviewed by a reporter who's there talking about how Skylab fell out of the sky. Yeah, I thought that was kind of random. It never came up again, did it? The whole Skylab falling out of the sky, that was something that actually happened. I'm looking at a thing online about it. It was July 11th, 1979. So this movie came out in 1983. So it makes sense if like the story itself is set in 1979 or kind of close to it. But the reporter is talking about, oh, hey, Skylab fell. Did you see it? And Captain Invincible is there in his drunken persona. And he's like, yeah, I was flying around and Skylab came towards me and I tried to catch it, but it was going too fast. Yeah, I had questions about that. Was he like hallucinating that he was flying trying to catch it? Because we know he can't fly anymore. He forgot how. So how was he flying to catch Skylab? It, he might have actually been flying. We see before he gets back into the swing of things that he's able to use some of his powers. That's true. He's drunk. He's not able to do it very well, but like he can still tap into that. Right. I think maybe when instinct takes over. Mm -hmm. But before we can get too much more of Captain Invincible in Australia, we cut quickly back to Mr. Midnight, who is based out of New York. And he is sitting behind this little control desk that he has. We see it several times over the course of the movie. And he is ordering his operatives to begin working. And he's got three main operatives that we can see. One of them is a homeless guy who is wandering around an alley, banging together trash can lids. So he's got crazy homeless people in his employee. He's also got a graffiti artist, spray painting things, and a old lady who's dropping dog oh, turds everywhere. It just occurred to me what the point of them was. They were making the neighborhood undesirable. Yep. Oh, okay. That makes so much more sense. Okay. Because after we see the operatives working, we see that there are new suburbs opening and they've got these ridiculous names that are all very ethnically based. Yeah, pretty much they're copying like Little Italy, Little China, mm -hmm. stuff like that, where certain ethnicities tend to group together because that's where they're comfortable. So they tend to group together and have these distinct neighborhoods. Yeah. So we start out and it's a guy behind a desk and he's talking to this Italian couple and he's like, you got to move out here. The city is just awful and you got to move out to the suburbs. And they're like, yeah, but the houses are so expensive. And then something pops out of the wall and it shoots them with a hypno ray. 
which we're going to find out that this hypno gun is a thing later on. But this couple that are very apprehensive about spending so much money on a suburb house are hypnotized into just giving all of their money to this development community. And it's not just Italians. It's also Jews, Mexicans, African descent people. Like, it's not just, you know, let's get all the black people to move out into the city. It's like, no, this is like Afro estates or something like that and they've decked everything out in like west african colors and patterns and things like that yeah they've done everything they can to make this particular suburban neighborhood the most appealing place for italians or jews or africans or all of these pretty much everybody except nice pure white people yeah there are no anglos in this setup no there's not and Honestly, I didn't think anything of it at first. Yeah, it didn't occur to me, like, the bottom line of what was going on at first. (laughs) There's one line in a song in this movie that really is going to hammer home exactly what kind of person Mr. Midnight is. Yeah. But the idea is he's trying to pull all of the non-white people out of the city, out of New York City, and put them in isolated suburbs. Yes. Elsewhere. I mean, maybe, like, camps, kind of? No, not camps. No, he's selling them houses. Nothing like a camp. No, he's selling them houses so he can steal all their money and then deal with them. Oh, okay. They're getting hypnotized into buying real estate. (laughs) Okay, when I first saw this, I thought it was a real estate scam, conquer the world thing. Like... From one of the Superman movies. Like any Lex Luthor scheme. Yeah. <laughs> he always does real estate stuff. That's right. His There's thing. money in real estate. Yeah. So that's what I thought the whole plan was about, was about real estate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's what Mr. Midnight's got going on in America. Meanwhile, back in Australia, we see this nice overhead view of the city and we zoom in and this lady on the street walks up to Kate Fitzpatrick, who is like at a food truck and they're like, officer, officer. And apparently she's like a plainclothes officer. Yeah, she's a detective. Yeah, she's a detective. That's what she is. And so... This lady on the street comes up to Patty Patria, is our detective, uh, Kate Fitzpatrick's character. And and this lady is like, that drunk is blocking the doorway. You've got to move him. And so Patty walks over and it's Captain Invincible and he's drunk sitting on the side of the road. And she tells him to like get up and move along. And so he does. And as they're walking down the street, someone is getting mugged and Patty steps in because she's a detective. Right. So the Pulls mugger- out her gun so fast- and shoots. Yeah, the mugger and Patty get in a gunfight in the middle of broad daylight on the street. <laughs> yeah. And the mugger runs away, jumps in a car, and then the mugger and his accomplice start charging their car at Patty. And it's got a flamethrower equipped to it. Of course it does. I mean... It's Australia. Mad Max and Road Warrior had come out at this point, so I guess everyone just assumed that all Australian vehicles have flamethrowers built into them. <laughs> At this point. (laughs) But Captain Invincible is between Patty and the car, and the car is charging him, and she's like, get out of the way! And he's like, nah, he's drunk. So all of a sudden, the car gets flung up into the air, and then dropped from a great height. And I don't know if it's Captain Invincible's magnet powers activating to throw the car, or if he's got super strength and it just hit him and, like, flew into the air because of that. Right. We see about as much as Patty sees. Right. So we don't see how the car gets up into the air. We see it coming down, hitting the ground, and then Captain Invincible is walking away. Yeah. It's very odd, and Patty is rightly perplexed by it. Now, at the same time, the American president has come to Sydney for something. So he is 
there, and he's meeting with a security council over something. It turns out that a hypno-ray has been stolen from this Australian government facility, and everyone in that facility is going crazy, and there's a ton of giggle. No, there's a ton of naked people everywhere. It's really weird. They have been hit by the giggle gun. Yeah, which which is a thing. Which... You hear the name Giggle Gun, you know what the gun does. But no, they had to have a whole conversation about what the Giggle Gun is. Yeah. Because the president and his security council, they're kind of dumb. It's an interesting collection of individuals. You've got one guy dressed in white, who I guess is like a, a Navy guy. He did seem Navy to me. There's at least two women that I'm not quite sure what they do. Well, they sing. Well, they all sing and dance. <laughs> yeah, but they were the first ones to start singing. There's the Australian prime minister is there initially. The American president is there. There's a general dude with an eye patch and a metal hand. And then there's another, would you say he was like another branch of military or something? There was like a, a fifth guy. Yeah. A black guy. Yeah. Who was the one who kept his wits about him longer than anybody else. Yeah. So they're trying to figure out what to do about the theft of the hypno-ray, and they're worried that someone's going to steal it and then retrofit it or dismantle it it and copy it. And some generals think it's just the Russians and they should start launching nukes and whatnot. And it's at this point that we get the first song of the movie. You know, of course I knew it was a musical, but this was a crappy song. I didn't mean to make a pun out of it. This is a bad song to start off this musical with. The first song of this movie is simply entitled Bullshit, and it's nothing but the American president saying the word bullshit over and over and over again for like a good 90 seconds, I'd say, because he's unhappy with everything that he's hearing. Right. And there's not a long interlude before we get into the second song. It was such a short interlude that I kind of lumped these two songs in together, and then at the end credits, you kind of saw they were two separate songs. Yes. The second song is much better and raised my hopes for the quality of the music for the rest of the movie. Yeah. He starts getting into it, and they actually wheel a band that was great. into the room on a little rolling cart. That was fantastic. And they do this, like... Baptist music spiritual style song about how they need a shining hero. And it's really good. It's actually not bad. And a bunch of the security council, they get up and they're the background singers and they're yeah. doing little dance steps and things. Yeah. And, and the best part, though, the best part is that the black guy is sitting there like shaking his head and rolling his eyes like, you guys are idiots. What are you doing? But then by the end of the song, he gets up and starts dancing with them. Mm hmm. I like the variety of music in this movie that you get more or less a different style of song with just about every musical number. Yes, you do. A lot of creative work going into these songs. Yes. Way more work than really is deserved for for a movie of this caliber. (laughs) So inspired by this song that he's sung for everyone, the Security Council and the President agree that they're just going to put out an APB for Captain Invincible because the President believes in Captain Invincible. Patty hears about this and she's like, well, I know where to find him. I will take care of this. And so she rounds up a bunch of police people and they go to where Captain Invincible is staying. And Patty goes in on her own to talk to him to convince Captain Invincible to come out of retirement, come out of hiding. And she's very professional at first, and she tries to appeal to his humanity and like, your country needs you. You Mm -hmm. need to get back on the horse. And he's like, no, which leads us into our second, 
I'm going to say it's the second song. I don't think the first I, song, like, qualifies. I lumped those first two into one, so. Yeah. Second song is Captain Invincible, Alan Arkin, singing about good guys and bad guys in a very country-western style. Yes. I was also very impressed with this song. It was really well done. It was well sung mm-hmm. by Alan Arkin, and it was, it was really good. It was... Not bad at all. And I liked the sentiment of it. The idea that back in the 30s and 40s, you had very clear designations. Who were the good guys and who were the bad guys? Bootleggers were bad. Cops were good. Nazis were bad. Allies were good. Everyone either wore a white cowboy hat or a black cowboy hat. And the lines were very clear. And Alan Arkin is singing very well about how now the lines are a little bit more gray. And how it hurts him as a hero to... Feel like the world is just getting blended like that. When you think about the timing of when he left society, it becomes more clear really what he's singing about. He left during the McCarthy era Mm -hmm. when good guys with good intentions started doing bad things and became bad guys and started accusing good guys of bad things. And, you know, they weren't always wrong. Sometimes they were right. You know, just everything went both ways. Yeah. And there was everything just turned gray. And that's exactly what he's talking about. That's exactly what he was a victim of. Mm -hmm. He's not convinced by Patty. She's not able to bring him around to her way of thinking. And as she goes to leave, another guy comes in and it's the American president. He's wearing a cowboy hat to help you distinguish that he's American. Yeah. And he tries to talk to Captain Invincible and Captain Invincible at first doesn't recognize him. But then he sits him down and he pulls out the signed picture that he got from Captain Invincible as a boy because the American president is the little boy from the Boy Scout camp scene during the war reel. I really like that detail that I don't think was necessary, but I really liked it anyways. I'm glad they threw it in there because it justified the president's belief in Captain Invincible. That's true. I don't think if the president had been anybody else that they would have given Captain Invincible so much leeway. Right. He does show a lot of faith in Captain Invincible throughout this movie when his security council, who are always around and don't have any faith in Captain Invincible, who just want to nuke Russia, that's all they want out of life is to nuke Russia. Yeah, that does justify the amount of faith and trust. So at one point, the president takes off his jacket and shows Captain Invincible that there is a mark on his shoulder from where Captain Invincible crushed all of his bones in his shoulder. And so appealing to Captain Invincible's nostalgia and sense of duty, you know, he did tell that kid, if you become president and you ever need me, I'll answer your call. Yeah. So the president's like, hey, we need you. We need you real bad. (laughs) He does some weird, like just some weird phrasing there. Mm -hmm. It's very awkward, but coming out of him, it seems goofy and appropriate. Yeah, it works. the, The president is... Pretty goofy. So pretty that, Well, pretty much everybody is pretty goofy in this movie. Yeah, no one escapes the, the description of being goofy. And this begins the training montage. Not really a montage, but the sequence of training in this HQ, which I guess is below the Sydney Opera House, of all places. Well, yes. And actually, I thought that was a little odd at first. Mostly because we visited a top-secret research and development complex in the center of australia that's where the giggle gun was Mm -hmm. used and the first number was done so why didn't they just go there but putting it in the sydney opera house calls forward to captain invincible's apartment being inside the statue of liberty right 
you put your important stuff inside large monuments because iconic. They're trying to get him to start flying again. They're trying to get him to start <laughs> using his magnetic powers again. Okay, my favorite thing is that so they've got him up in a harness, mm -hmm. like fake it till you make it flying. Yeah, <laughs> he's getting air sick. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so the dude in that scene with the mustache and the whistle, did you recognize him? Was it Max Phipps? Nope, it oh, was crap. Bill Hunter, who played Major Barton in Gallipoli. Oh, yes, it was. Yes, it was. He now was that you say the, that, I absolutely see it. He was, I guess, the police chief or the guy in charge of the detective agency. Yeah. The detective wing of the police agency or whatever. Yeah, I think he was the captain. Something like that. I don't know. They don't lay it out plain for me, so I don't have all the details on a movie we just watched a little while ago. But they're trying to trigger all of these abilities in Captain Invincible again, and they're going over. It's like, okay, when you wanted to fly, you didn't say magnets on, you said into the blue, and there's this lady with a folder full of all these little catchphrases of what he used to say. I like to think of that book as the production Bible <laughs> for how to run Captain Invincible. Yeah. <laughs> Like, just like she everything, was the script assistant. Yeah, like everything that's been out in public, every all the information that they have on him has been put into this book mm -hmm. for future reference. And she has it. And yeah, she's the script supervisor. Yeah. So the security council is there and everyone's getting really frustrated that nothing is really working. And Captain Invincible just gets really agitated and... Suddenly, this alarm goes off. Magnetism powers are activated, and all of these metal things start oh, flying at him. Yeah. I'm <laughs> generally not a fan of, like, gratuitous underwear shots. This was seriously a scene of gratuitous underwear. Apparently, every single button, every single zipper, every single fastener in that room was made out of metal. Because by the end of this scene, Captain Invincible is literally covered with things that are made out of metal. And the entire security council is standing there in their underwear. One of the guys in the security council, he a wore corset. a corset. A distinctly feminine corset. Not yeah. like, what do they call a man garter? What do they call a, a girdle? Man? Yeah. It was a feminine. It was the classic um, red, black lace, ruffles, piping, lace up the front. Which I gotta say, he was a very tall, thin man. He didn't necessarily need the girdle. No, it also thin. was not tied tight. It wasn't holding him in much. Yeah. So he was wearing it because he felt pretty in it. And that's fine. I can be supportive of that. What I hit up against is that he was wearing a white dress shirt mm. over it without an undershirt in between. Yeah. There's you, no way that that wasn't going to show through. You wear dark colors like red and black underneath a white shirt and they're going to show through. Right. So he should have... And I don't care if he, you know, was ashamed and was trying to hide it or wasn't ashamed and let people see it. I don't care. But... Fashion dictates that you wear the appropriate underwear for the appropriate clothes on top. And that was not the appropriate undergarment <laughs> for the shirt that he was wearing. Okay. That's my problem with the whole thing. There you go. So this first training exercise doesn't really go well. Patty went through a bunch of trouble to find Captain Invincible's old uniform, and she brings that to him at their secret training facility in the Opera House. And by the end of it, Captain Invincible is kind of bummed out about this, and they leave the Opera House together, him and Patty. And as they're walking away, there is a operative, codenamed Number 19, who is standing next to a car wearing a bright red cloak on a phone <laughs> talking to Mr. Midnight. And this actor is very ordinary looking. Well, he's a dwarf. Wearing a red cloak. Is that the right word? Yes. Okay. I'm not sure why he was wearing a bright red cloak. Well, he was disguising himself. 
as Little Red Riding Hood? I don't know. Uh, apparently. And also, he was still in the black VW Bug that... That was the same car. It was the same car. First of all, they got dropped from 20 feet. You can't tell me it gets dropped from 20 feet and then can just keep on driving. Yeah, it was weird. But all number 19 knows is that there's a lot of weird equipment going into the Sydney Opera House. And there is a police detective hanging out with a street drunk. And... Mr. Midnight is there in his headquarters on the phone, and he's being all nefarious. He has, and I think this might be the first big scene where we see it, Mr. Midnight has, like, a gremlin assistant named Julius. Yes. Um, I don't know what he is. Right. He's, it's never explained what he is. He is an alien of some kind. Yeah. I assume, because aliens are involved in this movie in a minor way, mm -hmm. but the existence of aliens does not play an important role in the plot. It is never spoken of. Yeah. Well, the aliens factor into his backstory, but that's it. Yeah. The main narrative, that's their only contribution. This scene also sets up one of the first gags with Mr. Midnight. Yeah. He has this little slug in his hand and he feeds the slug to a frog. Now, and I'm like, oh, he has a pet frog. Now, I believe the slug also had a name. Really? Yes. I didn't catch that. Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'd have to go back and watch it. I can't remember what the name was. But he he says a name and picks the slug up off of his shoulder where it was sitting there like a pet and then feeds it to a frog. And then we rejoin Captain Invincible and Patty. They're walking through the city. And Captain Invincible, who has started to sober up, like he was drunk as a skunk for like the last 40 years or something like that. And he's starting to finally get some clarity again. And so he starts listing off all of these restaurants where they should go get food. And of course, Patty has no idea where he's talking about. And she's like, you're in Australia. You're in Sydney. And he's like, I'm in Sydney? What am I doing in Australia? He was so drunk. For the past however long that he never realized for a moment that he was in Australia and not New York. Yeah, he, he thought he was in New York. That's pretty funny. So with no place to go, Patty brings Captain Invincible back to her apartment. So she is making dinner for him, steak and french fries. The only part of making dinner we see is that she puts something in the microwave. Yeah. Neither steak nor french fries should be put in the microwave. So what the heck, Patty? <laughs> I don't know. What does stand out about this scene is that he walks into her apartment and she's got booze sitting up on the counter because she's an adult. And as he walks towards the booze, he gets kind of trancy. And she knows that he's an alcoholic. And so she puts away the bottles. And as he's standing there next to the counter where the bottles were, he starts having these like flashes. He starts seeing things. And my guess is that he's really sobering up in such a way that all of these things that he suppresses with alcohol are just flying back into him. At least that's the impression I got. Yeah, I think I agree with you. Another explanation is that he wanted the booze so badly that it was, you know, causing him physical anxiety and pain and distress. Mm. I like your explanation better, but I think my explanation is maybe a little more realistic. I think it's... A little column A, a little column B. Yeah. He does a funny little thing where he bites onto the counter the way someone in distress would bite onto something to uh, release aggression and tension. Yeah. And he bites off a chunk of the counter because he has super strength. So they sit down to dinner. They're microwaved steak and fry <sighs> French fries. Yeah. 
And Patty asks about his abilities, like, is he the only one? And he says, for all I know, that I, I, that's the case. And so he goes into his backstory, and we flash back to whatever year he was conceived, as we see a flying saucer flying through the air, and down below are two people having sex outside. Mm-hmm. And it cuts between these two people and aliens inside the flying saucer, and the aliens see the people having sex, and then they shoot some sort of light beam into the woman as she is conceiving. And when the baby is born, it has special powers right off the bat. Oh, yes. When, in in typical fashion, the husband is kept out of the room mm -hmm. and only invited in once all of the mayhem is done. Yeah. So he's invited into the room. Mom is asleep and there's no baby anywhere. Turns out baby is on the ceiling and says into the blue. Yeah. The baby is not baby sized. And no. And also like can talk. toddler. And is wearing a cape. And is wearing a cape. <laughs> Did you notice... When we saw all of the aliens shooting the light into the woman, one of the aliens looks like the gremlin in Mr. Midnight's lair. It's got like the same ears and head shape. No! Yeah. I mean, I figured they were connected in some way. So you think one of the aliens was like, yeah, I think I want to stay here. This looks like a good place. I want to stay. Could be. That's the only reasonable in the world of this movie explanation for what the heck Julius is doing with Mr. Midnight. That he's yeah. just an alien. Yeah. Maybe he was kidnapped. Maybe he was abandoned. Maybe it was an accident and he like fell out of the spaceship and was accidentally abandoned. Who knows? It's never even alluded to nope. if there's a connection or the history there. Yeah, they really do not care to explain it to us. But at dinner, they're having this conversation about his backstory. And at one point, Patty gets up and she walks over, I think, to throw something away. And she bends over to, like, take care of something. Uh-huh. And it's at that point that Captain Invincible's magnet powers start going haywire again. Yeah. I don't really know what to say about this. The romantic relationship in this movie is present, but not emphasized. Yeah, it's... Poorly written, in my opinion. Yes. There's a lot of potential there. So I'm just not sure if his sexual arousal is linked to his magnetic ability. That's what they make it look like. Yeah. And after dinner, they're sitting there talking, and Patty admits that at first she saw Captain Invincible as a way to advance her career, but now that she's gotten to know him, she's more interested in him, just his general welfare, and of course she's interested in him romantically, because, you know, it's one of these movies. And this leads us into song number three, Ugh. which is not so much Patty singing... As much as her putting on a record and lip syncing to it. Yes. And the record that was already on the player just happened to be a perfect song mm -hmm. for the despair that Captain Invincible is feeling. Yep. It's a song all about how he can do it and how she believes in him and how she'll stand beside him. Very specific to yes. the situation. And she's kind of hamming it up. I suspect that Kate Fitzgerald cannot sing to save her life. Mm -hmm. This is her only number. <laughs> Upstage, lads. This is my only number. So she does have a little tiny part in a number further down the road at the end, which is also lip synced. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think she can't sing. After this little pep talk, 
from Patty. He puts on his uniform. He goes back to headquarters and he's like, I'm going to use my computer brain to track down the suspect who stole the hypno ray. And they hook him up into all of these different things. He's got weird glasses. He's got headphones and his computer brain activates and he's able to find a location that they need to investigate. But after he finds the location, he kind of gets stuck in a weird loop where he just starts regurgitating information seemingly randomly and he has to run over a chalkboard and say, computer brain malfunctioning, hit me with a book or something like that. (laughs) He has to like crash out of the room and start banging his head on walls to like stop the computer brain from just going haywire. Can you imagine how awful that was for him? It was awful for us because they did this weird like voice modulation to yeah. Alan Arkin and they made his voice go all high, but he wasn't necessarily talking faster. It was very awkward. I appreciated the concept of he's out of practice with his computer brain. He tries to use it. He's successful in getting the information he needs, but it doesn't go all perfect. I appreciate that concept. It went on too long. Yeah. A good whack on the head and him going back to normal would have done it. Mm-hmm. Instead, he ends up going halfway through a wall yes. before they stop the scene. The ridiculousness of this scene with his computer brain is dwarfed by the ridiculousness of the next scene because they go into oh, a vacuum me. shop to find their suspect. Well, there's no suspect inside, but there is a camera, and Mr. Midnight sees Captain Invincible and activates a trap. All the vacuums come alive. And start attacking Patricia and Captain Invincible. And it's this whole thing. Okay, did you see the parallel between the vacuum cleaners and the snake? Right about that same time, we get the scene where Mr. Midnight feeds the frog Mm -hmm. to the snake. And it's about that same time that they're at the vacuum shop and the vacuums come alive and they behave snake-like. Yep, there is one point where he's fighting this vacuum where he's got a vacuum head and it's kind of in front of him. Very, um... Cobra-like. Cobra-like, yeah. Like Raiders of the Lost Ark when the cobra comes up against Indiana Jones or in Road Warrior where Max is facing off against the snake and he holds up his hand as like another snake head and he snatches the vacuum same way that Max snatches the snake from Road Warrior. Yes, yes it is. But in the process of this trap, the front doors are locked, he can't break the front window, and all of these vacuum cleaners are sucking the oxygen out of this room that they're in. Mm-hmm, because that makes complete sense. Ugh, it's so dumb. <laughs> like, vacuums don't work like that. So Captain Midnight tries to activate his magnet powers, but all he ends up doing is flying, and... Which should have helped, because he broke through the ceiling right. into the room above, which should have... Poured oxygen into the room? Yes. Now, I think him blasting through the ceiling, was that where we saw Virginia Hay as the beautician? Yes, it was. It was like two seconds. Yeah. Very short. But he's able to stop the vacuums somehow. Does he just kill them all or something? No, he reverses the polarity of the electronics that are going on in the place. Mm -hmm. And they all... They all reverse their airflow and start pouring oxygen back into the room. That's right. Yes, and it also unlocks the front doors. So dumb. So this was obviously a trap. Captain Invincible is convinced that there is a mole who is working against them within the Security Council. So they go back to headquarters. And the scene that they find, all of the Security Council members are tied up, lashed together, and they've got these headphones on, and they're just going out of their minds, like going crazy. Right. And Patricia pulls one of the headphones off, and she's like, oh, it's Jane Fonda reading on Walden Pond. Captain (laughs) Invincible's like, they didn't stand a chance. And I'm like... It's the giggle gun. They were attacked with a giggle gun. They must have been. 
That's the only thing that makes sense. Yes. And they're all in straitjackets, too. Exactly. So the Australian police show up, the Sydney police, I guess, because they are going to arrest Captain Invincible and Patricia because they've been framed. Yeah. To escape, Patty jumps on Captain Invincible's back and they fly through the wall out into the skies around Sydney. It's at this point that we connect up with Mr. Midnight again. He's getting little updates about how successful his real estate venture is being. And it's this point that he feeds the snake that ate the frog, that ate the slug, to a vulture. Yes. So he is, one by one, getting new pets with each time he shows up. Were you wondering what the vulture was going to get fed to? Yes. Yes, Yes. I was. Did Uh, you have any ideas? No. No, I didn't. Neither did I. The only thing I thought of was that old nursery rhyme about the old lady who swallowed a fly. Yeah. Like, what do you feed a vulture to? It's like a dog or a cat or a cow? I don't know. Yeah, or a bear. Or a bear, yeah. But we don't get that answer just yet because we cut back to Captain Invincible and Patty and they are riding a train wearing big old trench coats and dark sunglasses. And that is like the perfect disguise, despite the fact that you can still see that Captain Invincible is wearing his shiny leotard underneath the coat. Right. And it's at this point that Captain Invincible tells Patty about Mr. Midnight and how he is the embodiment of the evil that has always existed. And we get kind of a, not exactly a duet, but kind of a back and forth sing and response between the verses between Captain Invincible and Mr. Midnight. Yeah. This might be the most spectacular dance scene in the movie. Uh, yeah. Mr. Midnight employs a lot of backup dancers. He does, and they work really hard. One thing that bothered me about this scene is that the train doors never close when the trains start moving. <laughs> yeah, I did notice that. It's after this song about Mr. Midnight that Captain Invincible and Patty fly over Sydney Harbor in an extended flying scene. Captain Invincible sings about flying, and they fly from Australia all the way to New York City. Because that makes a lick of sense. The whole time, Patty is sitting on his back, pretending like she's comfortable. Mm-hmm. She is not. She's absolutely not comfortable. I would have fallen off like 20 minutes into the flight. You just can't hold yourself in that position without any kind of support. That's what I find most unbelievable about this scene. After they're done flying all the way to New York, and they end the flying scene with them flying around Lady Liberty, and that's going to be important a little bit later. But first, we have to go back to Mr. Midnight, who's standing waist deep in a swimming pool. And floating on that swimming pool are a bunch of little islands that represent his real estate ventures. And he gets an update about how that's been going. And uh, after he's done talking about how, you know, soon my plan is going to go into effect, you know, today, New York, tomorrow, the world type of thing. We transition into a scene of Mr. Midnight sitting at a table for dinner. And the end of the pool scene and the majority of the beginning of the table scene is done in sped up footage. Yes. For no reason whatsoever. Right. And some weird things happen during the sped up time. Yeah. There's two women in his bed who fool around alternately with the little gremlin guy. What's his name? Julius. Julius. Thank you. And the butler. And at the same time, the butler is serving dinner and he has to go retrieve Julius from the bed and he carries him like a baby. It's so weird. He carries him like a baby over to dinner, puts him at the table. And then goes and fools around with the women himself. 
Now, granted, this entire time, Christopher Lee, as Mr. Midnight, is sitting dead still. Yes. And when the sped up footage is done, the butler lifts the covering of the plate in front of Mr. Midnight, and it's the vulture. Which, in hindsight, makes perfect sense. What eats a vulture? A human. Yeah. It's uh, so strange. So strange. But then again, we go to the Oval Office next, and the security council are walking in, and they're like, listen, Captain Invincible has gone rogue. We don't know where he is. We can't trust him to finish this mission. And the president is like, no, I trust him. We're going to give him another 24 hours to fix this, and then we'll go with the nuclear option or whatever. The next scene we get is of a tour guide on a boat around Ellis Island, and she's talking about the Statue of Liberty. And there's a little boy who says, can we go up to the observation deck in the head? And the tour guide's like, sadly, the government closed that 30 years ago, so you can't go up there. We, however, go up there and find that it has been converted from an observation deck into Captain Invincible's private apartment, gifted to him by the government. By Eisenhower, I think. Mm -hmm. It seems to be that Eisenhower was the president that Captain Invincible was particularly close to. Yeah. He got a lot of his stuff from Ike. He was on a first name basis with him. There's lots of pictures mm -hmm. on the wall. Now, was there one picture of Marilyn Monroe? Oh, yeah. He had kind of like a Forrest Gump photo collection. Yeah. And with a bunch of famous Wouldn't people. Wouldn't he have been disappeared by the time Marilyn Monroe came around? Oh, I, I don't know. Because I, I Marilyn Monroe was famous in like the 50s and the 60s, right? I did not pay attention to the timeline of this movie. And uh, <laughs> if I did, I would probably go crazy trying to figure it out. I am definitely calling out that particular one because he disappeared in the 40s and she was in her prime in the 60s. Yeah. One thing that really stands out, and it's kind of been a running theme ever since he got his uniform back, he keeps looking at his radio and saying, she's not on. It's Right. We don't really know what it means. It, it kind of hints at a romantic connection that was. Yeah. But nothing more is really said about it. Yeah. But anyway, it's going to come back a little bit later, this idea that she's not on and he's constantly listening to his radio for this woman's voice. But he uses his sensors in Lady Liberty's head to find Mr. Midnight. And then once he's sure that he knows where Mr. Midnight is, he calls the White House and says, you know, it's Mr. Midnight. I'm going to take care of him. And the president's like, I don't know who you're talking about. I don't believe you. And so Captain Invincible is like, okay, cool. I'm just going to go take care of it myself. So... Captain Invincible, his next lead is a deli. And when they get to the deli, they notice that the sign lettering on the deli is the same sign lettering as the vacuum shop. So they know they're in the right area. Mm -hmm. They go up to the counter, they order a couple sandwiches, and then they ask for information about Mr. Midnight. And the deli worker is like, how do I know anything about Mr. Midnight? And Captain Invincible goes, well, you're putting mayonnaise on a pastrami sandwich. And then the deli owner reaches behind the counter and says, how about some gefilte fish? And he pulls out a giant plastic tuna with a gun inside and he starts shooting up the restaurant. Oh my gosh, I love how it went from zero to 100 in zero seconds flat. That was phenomenal. And then it only like got more crazy from there. It wasn't just a shootout. Mm -hmm. One detail from before they start talking to the deli manager, the lady he's talking to at the counter before they show up, he's talking up the development. Yes, he is. For the Jewish people. It's like, yeah, it's Israeli estates. You've got to check it out. And the lady's like, okay, thank you. Bye. Yeah. One thing I like about the establishing shot of the deli is you've got one table with a bunch of Orthodox Jews and then the next table over are a couple of Arab guys. So it's kind of like a one world. They're able to sit down and not at the same table, but like everyone's in the same restaurant eating together. Yeah. 
But a fight ensues between the employees of the deli and Captain Invincible and Patty, who are ducked behind the table. And the whole thing just devolves into a food fight at one point. Yes, it does. He is next to a tray of pies that he starts throwing around. Did you see the large loaf of bologna that opened up to be a... I think it was a Gatling gun that a... shot hot dogs. Yes, exactly what it was. <sighs> so absurd. It then exploded on the wall behind Patty and Captain Invincible. Yeah. Yeah. Explosive hot dogs. Yep. Because why not? So everybody ends up covered in pie, mm -hmm. except Captain Invincible, who is clean as a whistle. He tries to activate his magnetic powers to deflect the bullets, but all he does is end up attracting a bunch of knives yeah. that fly at him and stick into the table they're hiding behind. One of my favorite gags from this fight, beside the fish gun, at the end of the fight, he pulls out a pie symbol. Yes, he and does. And he throws the pie symbol at the it deli owner. It was so Monty Python, it was hilarious. Yeah. I was a little disappointed that it didn't really do anything. Mm -hmm. I was hoping that that would be the weapon that kills the bad guy. Well, I think it is. It's the one that cut off his head? I think so. Oh, or It's okay. the one that knocked him into the deli slicer. Okay, which had been turned on by the magnetic powers. Yep. After this fight, we get another lamenting song from Captain Invincible about, oh, what's happened to the world, and it's not like how it used to be. And at the end of this song, a trap door opens up underneath Captain Invincible, and he falls down what seems to be like a bottomless pit. Yeah, he falls for a while. I really wanted him to say something like, I'm still falling. But kudos to Patty for not jumping down after him. Yeah. Patty hangs out in the restaurant and she's cleaning up and she's talking to an NYPD officer and the officer's like, listen, I need you to fill out a report that doesn't involve my precinct. Like, we need to not be involved in this. Right. Which, yeah, you can't do that. There was a gunfight in your precinct. You can't do paperwork that says you weren't involved. Like, it's your job to be involved. If you weren't involved, then you're in trouble. Yeah. If you let that go without getting involved, that's really bad. Anyway, Captain Invincible eventually reaches the bottom of this seemingly bottomless pit, and he's in this, like, garbage area. And Mr. Midnight calls all of his operatives into action, and so this mob of misfits start chasing Captain Invincible around this dark, dingy area. Bruce Spence is there in a lab coat with a giant syringe. He tries to stab Captain Invincible with it and instead goes into an electrical panel. Yep. So there's that. Max Phipps was somewhere as the Admiral. The tall, thin guy with the white uniform on. You think that was Max was Phipps? Was that Ma Max Phipps? I don't know. No. I'm not entirely sure, but he's the only guy that fits the description of Admiral, is a guy wearing that white uniform. Yeah. Which, the fact that he was wearing that corset, probably a callback to him being Frankenverter. Oh. He just looked so different from Road Warrior that it was hard to recognize him. Yes. Anyway, Captain Invincible is able to evade the operatives, and so Mr. Midnight's butler gives Mr. Midnight the update. Butler's dismissed, and as... Captain Invincible is trying to catch up to Mr. Midnight. He keeps getting dropped into these pits. He's dropped into a snake pit. He's dropped into a alligator pit. And then he's almost crushed by a giant peach pit. Captain Invincible is able to avoid all of these traps. And he follows Mr. Midnight into another room. And as he steps into this other room, he says, well, that was the pits. Yes. Gaffa, gaffa. Which I was delighted by. Logical conclusion, I guess. And so Captain Invincible is facing off with Mr. Midnight in this room. There's this large... Thing off to Mr. Midnight's right, 
And Mr. Midnight's like, ah, so you've caught me. And so he talks about, oh, we've gone back and forth like this for years and whatnot. And they trade barbs back and forth. Captain Invincible calls Mr. Midnight a egomaniac and a sociopath and whatnot. Mr. Midnight's like, oh, thank you. (laughs) And it's at this point that we get song number seven, which is arguably the best song in the movie. I would agree. Mr. Midnight motions and this giant set object opens up to reveal a bar with just pre-mixed drinks everywhere. And he starts taunting Captain Invincible about his alcoholism. And he sings this song. Basically, if you don't pick your poison and start drinking, I'm going to kill you type of thing. And the backup dancers come back in and there is a little portion where, you know, Captain Invincible starts hallucinating that Patty's there dressed up like one of the dancers and she's lip syncing along with Christopher Lee. And Christopher Lee is singing the hell out of this song. Yes. It's at this point that if you didn't know that he had a musical career, that you would have to go check to see if he'd sung other things because he is phenomenal in this number. Oh, and he, at one point in this song, just goes real deep with the note that he's doing and his voice is so resonant. It sounds amazing. Yeah, it was it was really quite impressive. Yeah. And because he's been a slave to the booze for so long, Captain Invincible literally just curls up in the fetal position on the ground. Yeah. And the final shot of this song is Captain Invincible curled up on the ground, Mr. Midnight standing over him with his boot on Captain Invincible in a triumphant pose. The song ends and all the backup dancers scurry off screen. Yes. <laughs> Captain Invincible is almost defeated, except that Patty is back in the Statue of Liberty and she's rifling through his things, trying to think of a way to help him. And she remembers him saying, she's not on, she's not on. And there's this radio frequency or something that he uses with his little Captain Invincible radio. And she finds a record of God Bless America and she puts it on the radio network thing and she starts broadcasting it out. And so... Captain Invincible, his radio springs to life with a rendition of God Bless America, and it reinvigorates him. We see Patty after she's playing the song, and she's sitting in his lair crying. Like, it seems like she's moved by the music, and I wonder why. It's a very patriotic song. So not if for you're, Australians, though. Right. So if you're not American... Does the song really do anything for you? No. So I'm just wondering why she was so moved. Yeah. The important thing about the song is that it stops Captain Invincible from drinking Sterno. Yes. I thought that was very interesting. He is offered any kind of drink he wants of any kind of quality. Like he, he's offered high quality drink and he's able to resist. And then Mr. Midnight offers him Sterno, like the lowest kind of alcohol that won't kill you. And that's debatable. No, Sterno will definitely kill you. You know, Sterno is what they put underneath chafing trays to keep them warm. Like that stuff is straight up poison. So, but that he's going to drink. I think he's so catatonic at that point that he would just drink whatever is handed to him. Yeah. And that's why he hands him a, a tin of Sterno. Yep. So he's going to drink it when the music comes on. Right. Mr. Midnight, frustrated at Captain Invincible suddenly return to lucidity, tries to shoot a rocket at Captain Invincible, but he dodges. And so the chase resumes and they eventually get to Mr. Midnight's map room with all of his little models in the pool. Yeah. And... 
Captain Invincible destroys the controller that's blowing up the suburbs because Mr. Midnight starts blowing up his housing developments with the uh, ethnic people inside. Yes, but he is successful in blowing them up, which this was a nice little twist. I thought he was going to blow up like each house and kill the people, but no, he blew up the connection to the land. Mm -hmm. And so there are now these independently floating islands. Yeah. Captain Invincible not only stops the controller from blowing things up. He also grabs a giant globe and throws it at Mr. Midnight, and the whole base starts blowing up. So he just flies out of there. So I guess Mr. Midnight is defeated? I guess so. I guess so. Captain Invincible then flies up into the air, starts blowing up submarines... And I guess saves all the people. Yeah, why was he blowing up the submarines? I guess the submarines were involved somehow. It was not very clear at all. Yeah. But Captain Invincible is able to save all the people. And there are little newspapers that spin onto the screen and tell us as much. And then the movie ends with Captain Invincible flying around. And he gives this pep talk to a bunch of people in the street below with a megaphone. like, oh, we've got to work together and make America great again and all this other stuff. <laughs> Interesting phrasing there, hon. I know, right? Kind of weird. But that's pretty much how the movie ends, with them flying around New York with Patty on the back of Captain Invincible. Yes. Looking at the IMDb page for The Return of Captain Invincible, this movie, after 571 reviews, is rated a 5.7 out of 10. Oh, it's a little low, I think. I am not surprised. 11% of raters... Gave this a 10, 4.9% gave it a 1. A majority of the people who rated this movie gave it between a 5 and an 8. I can get on board with that. I'd probably give it like a 6. That range I feel is appropriate. Yeah. For sure. So now that we know what other people think of it, and you've heard our deep dive into the plot and whatnot, Juliet, is there a favorite thing that stood out to you from this movie that you want to pinpoint? Ooh, okay. Uh, my favorite thing would have to be Mr. Midnight mm -hmm. and kind of everything about him from Christopher Lee's acting and singing, which was all amazing to I really liked the gag of feeding the pet to the pet and then that pet to the pet. That was really funny. I like that nonsensical parts of his plan in the end made sense. Mm -hmm. Like the, oh, what was the name of the poop plan? The dog poop? Oh, I didn't catch it. Okay. There was a name to the plan, something funny. You know, and the loud people in the graffiti, like, that all made sense in the end. There were some, like, you know, just oddball things about him. Like, Julius, he didn't serve any function. Yeah. He never did anything that a human couldn't do. It kind of felt like just an excuse to have a little bit of wackiness there. But it didn't, like, detract. It might have been odd, but I was okay with it. So, yeah. yeah. Mr. Midnight. He also had a really awesome name. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say everything about Christopher Lee... He was. But you stole that from me. He was a really spectacular part of this movie. Yeah. I think my favorite part might actually be Patty because she is willing to believe in Captain Invincible when no one else will. She's able to support him and believe in him. And she ends up being the catalyst that pulls Captain Invincible out of his pit. She encourages him to sober up and to be the hero that she knows he can be. And yeah, she did it initially to further her career. But in the end, she was doing it because she sincerely believed in him. And she's capable. She never gets damseled. She's fully able to take care of herself at all points in the movie. And even though she gets sidelined, it's not because she's a woman. It's because she gets left behind. 
Captain Invincible is trapped. Patty is not. And so Patty just goes off and does other stuff. She has to deal with the NYPD. She goes back to Lady Liberty, to the main base there, to try and be helpful. And she's actively trying to be helpful. I really like her. She takes action. And so I feel like she's a really good character. She does pull out her gun a lot and fire her weapon a lot. But she also hits lots of things. Right. She actually makes a difference. Mm. She shoots down the bad guys or the bad vacuums, as the case may be. So, yeah, she's a good shot. Mm -hmm. What stands out as your least favorite part of this movie? This one is easy for me. And I mentioned it before. When Captain Invincible is flying from Australia to New York and then back to Australia. Well, presumably back to Australia. I assume that he takes her home at the end of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. But she's just sitting on his back the whole time. Yeah. It's just so ridiculous. Like, we have considered going on vacation to Australia and considered what that would mean as far as the length of time that it would take to fly there and how uncomfortable that would be. And that's in, you know, an actual chair. But, oh, just sitting on his back for that long. So you're more bothered by the concept of a thing that happened in the movie than any particular part there? Yes. Okay. Because my least favorite part of this movie is the inclusion of Julius. I found him completely pointless. I found him distracting. Yeah. It was just something that every time you had Mr. Midnight on screen, it had the potential to be perfect. And yet you had this little Muppet gremlin thing eating up part of the screen. It's like, get him out of there because he is detracting from Christopher <laughs> Lee's performance. Get him out. That is true. That is true. It's definitely the one element of this movie that I really could have done without. I think for me, it would have made no difference without him, which means there was no point in him being there. You found him innocuous. I found him distracting and frustrating. Yeah. And I think those two things are relatively minor. Oh, yeah. 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 The movie itself loses points overall because of the editing in the story, in my book. That's why it's not a more appreciated movie, I think. The pacing, the editing, all of these things that make up the movie just don't come together the way that you expect them to. So I feel like that's why this is not a better remembered and more popular movie. Mm-hmm. For me, some of the scenes had lackluster dialogue. Yeah. I'm thinking specifically of the scene with the president and the cabinet. Well, anytime the cabinet's on screen, yeah. they're just crappy. But specifically, the first time we see them all together, when the research and development compound mm -hmm. place has been hit with the giggle gun. Yeah. Just their whole dialogue, their whole way of interacting with each other was really obnoxious. Yeah. I hated the bullshit song. Hated it. It was very lazy. It was. And it was gratuitous. Yeah. I'm okay with language and nudity and whatever in movies as long as it's part of the plot, that it's not gratuitous. That song was completely unnecessary. They could have written just like a 30-second intro to the song about needing a hero saying something like, yeah, everything you guys are telling me is bullshit and this is what we really need. We yeah. didn't need to have a whole song going on and on, nothing but bullshit. Mm -hmm. I also somewhat disagree with the sentiment that they need a shining hero. I've always held to the idea that we really don't need another hero, that all we really need is life beyond Thunderdome, but that will come later in <laughs> April. <laughs> what are your final thoughts for this movie? My final thoughts are 
that I enjoyed it very much. It is nowhere near a perfect movie, but come on, that's just not realistic to expect. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It had lots of problems, but on the whole, I had a good time. Yeah, like the problems aren't enough to dissuade you from recommending it. No, not at all. I would absolutely recommend it. This movie is definitely not for everybody. You need to be able to enjoy campiness musicals. Mm -hmm. Do you get the sense that this was intended to be a superhero-themed answer to the Rocky Horror Picture Show? Absolutely, yes. I was going to say that. It definitely had that vibe. Yeah. It actually made me want to go back and see Rocky Horror Picture Show, because it has been quite some time for me. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it very much reminded me of that. I had such a good time watching this movie. I would wholeheartedly recommend it to anyone. This is a tricky movie to track down. We weren't able to get a YouTube link on the listener page for this movie. I was only ever able to find trailers and short clips on YouTube. I don't know anywhere else where I could point people to find it because we borrowed it digitally from someone and that's how we watched it i don't know what anyone else did i guess you have to buy it on amazon on dvd or vhs or something like that but if you can find this movie i would wholeheartedly recommend sitting down and just watching it with no expectation of it being serious i agree you gotta just let the experience happen to you Mm -hmm. and take it for what it is yeah you've got to listen with your heart Which is my way of transitioning into saying that the next time you hear us, we are going to be watching another musical. This one is going to feature Mel Gibson, and we actually recorded it long before this recording. There's a little peek behind the curtain. We recorded it when we were down in Virginia with Julia's family. So there's going to be several more voices than Mm -hmm. you're used to hearing. Yep. And uh, pay attention to the listener page for a sneak peek of what movie that's going to be. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. The Return of Captain Invincible is presented by Seven Keys. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for our review of The Return of Captain Invincible. See you next time. It'll put you in the pink, and all you have to do is drink, 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 drink.